Welcome to Season 3 of the Unscripted Medicine Podcast, a podcast by medical students who live and learn at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. On the show, we host a variety of discussions such as navigating the preclinical and clinical years, exploring humanism in medicine, and developing our physician identities outside of the textbook. Check out the show notes or our website for more information, helpful links, resources, and more. Please connect with us via email or on Twitter at unscripted underscore med. We would love to hear from you. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, my name is Matthew Orshak and welcome to the Unscripted Medicine Podcast. Today's episode is hosted by M3's Rachel Holloway and Alex Gelati and will be part of our Clinical Communication Pearls, a series where we sit down with experts to provide students with realistic and practical advice on how to best approach various clinical encounters. Today's episode will discuss how to best take care of patients who have psychotic disorder. Unfortunately, it is not uncommon for mental health to be stigmatized in many parts of today's society, so the Inscripted podcast team wanted to sit down with a mental health professional to discuss how we, as medical students, can feel comfortable combating the stigma and broaching these hard yet important conversations with patients. Our expert today is a board-certified family medicine and psychiatry physician, Dr. Corey Keaton. Dr. Keaton is currently the medical director of the inpatient consultation and liaison psychiatry service at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center and is a learning community preceptor. He earned his medical degree at the Joan C. Edwards School of Medicine at Marshall University and completed his residency in both family medicine and psychiatry at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Keaton. So thank you, Dr. Keaton, for being on the show with us. Um, To kind of set the scene for this episode, I think it might be helpful for both Rachel and I and our listeners to kind of go through what is psychosis and the differences between, you know, real life and how it's portrayed in the media. Yeah, you guys, and you get, that's a great question. You bring up a great point because psychosis and psychotic disorders Definitely, when you see them on TV, when you hear about them in the news, they present one way, right? You get this person who is agitated, aggressive, loud, you know, running around, hyperactive, seeing things, hearing things, talking to themselves. That's what most most of us think of when we think of psychosis. And those things can be really, that can be really true. That can be how a lot of people present, but there are also people who are on this complete other side of psychosis, where the big symptoms that you see are all involved within kind of their thought process and their content of their thought, which is really the important things actually when you're, you're trying to get someone to meet diagnostic criteria for psychosis is taking a look at, at that, those thoughts and how are, how are someone thinking? So I wonder if you could dive into a little bit more of the specifics as far as what psychotic thought processes look like? What would someone be thinking if they're undergoing a psychotic episode or suffering from a psychotic uh, or suffering from psychosis? The big thing that, you know, as psychiatrists that we use to diagnose everyone, you know, or this checklist um, that is based on our diagnostic manual or the DSM. So right now we're on DSM-5, which is kind of the most up-to-date version of it. So we use that a lot when we're trying to tease out, you know, this person is experiencing some mental health illness. What are they, 
experiencing. Um, and one thing that we look for in psychosis is the thought, the thought content, the thought process. So as far as the process, you and I kind of just talking, our thought process, it's linear, right? We're following kind of a, a comprehensible path. Um, we are speaking and going to an end point. So we're attempting to answer a question. What we're saying is logical. Um, there's goal direction to what we're saying. That's all considered very normal. When you have someone who is having an underlying psychiatric illness, specifically psychosis, that stuff just isn't there. So the thought process is really disorganized. So they're talking about things that, that don't necessarily make sense. They're using words in incorrect orders. They're not able to answer any of your questions in a logical manner. Um, it doesn't seem to be to be linear and it's not going anywhere when they're talking. So there's a real disorganization to the way that they present in terms of their thought process. The other thing that can be drastically different from a quote unquote, you know, normal person to a psychotic person is the thought content. So for psychosis, you it is very common that you do have signs of, of paranoia. So someone is they're paranoid that people are out to get them or things have been implanted into them or people are watching them or so there's these paranoid delusions. So these are are thoughts that are not necessarily truly based in that person's reality. Um, so there's a lack of or a loss of reality in their thought content. And then also you get to like true hallucinations. So people do hallucinate. And the most common in a true psychotic disorder by far is auditory hallucinations. So people are hearing things. They can either be like in internal, they feel like they hear a voice inside their head or external. Feel, feel like they hear someone outside talking to them. Um, but you can also see other, other forms of hallucinations like visual hallucinations can also occur, um, though not as common. But really you're looking for that kind of disorganization of the thought um, that is gonna clue you in that this person may actually be psychotic. What is the difference, just from my own knowledge, between delusions and hallucinations? I feel like I've learned this hundreds of times, but it never sticks. So could you remind me what the difference is between those two? Yes. So delusions and hallucinations are very similar, um, but kind of on a spectrum. So delusions, for the most part, are really strong beliefs that are kind of atypical, abnormal, um, but they're still kind of based in reality. So they could potentially happen. You know, could... Alex be the next big movie star, right? Potentially could happen. Definitely will happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's up for debate. But, you know, unlikely or, you know, so it's stuff that it is, is more connected to reality and theoretically could happen, though very, very unlikely. Okay. Um, whereas hallucinations have no con no connection to reality. They're um, usually very, um, they can be like hyper-religious, they can be hyper-sexual, they, they're just not at all connected to reality um, and, and not at all really possible. So a patient who is currently thinking that they are dating a celebrity, yeah. for example, would that would That's be a delusion. delusion. Another good way to think of it is hallucinations tend to be based on senses. 
I hear things, I see things, I feel things. Um, whereas delusions tend to be based on beliefs. So yeah, so I'm dating a celebrity or I'm the best cook in the world or I'm the, so one is kind of uh, sense-based and one is kind of belief-based. And in a patient who's experiencing psychosis, will they experience both delusions and hallucinations or one or the other? Most will have both. Okay. One can be more prominent. You know, one may slap you in the face more when you're talking to them. But a lot of the time that you will see both hallucinations and delusions. Hallucin it also kind of is on a spectrum. Usually the more severe the psychosis gets, the more likely someone is to have true hallucinations. The delusional stuff um, tends to come first. So we talked about the typical media portrayal of a psychotic patient coming into the ED being very, very loud, aggressive in your face with their hallucinations or delusions. But we know that this isn't always the case. And are there any other common misconceptions regarding psychosis that you frequently encounter both in medicine in general or just in the public in general? I think one is the big one that they have to be hallucinating to be psychotic. That's not true, right? You can just have the delusional content as far as your, your, your thought process, uh, or you can have that disorganization of your thought process. You don't have to be actively hallucinating to be, to be psychotic. The other one is that it is always, another misconception is there is always this hyperactive component to psychosis, the yelling, the screaming, the running around, the kicking, the being aggressive. And there's also a, a huge subset of, of psychosis, which is called hypoactive psychosis. So it almost will seem like they are, you know, slowed or they're just sitting, staring, not moving, not really talking. Um, that can also be a sign of that someone may be experiencing some psychosis. So it's not always that in your face, hyperactive, kicking, screaming, yelling, uh, it can be much more subtle in, in the way it presents, uh, especially if you're dealing with a hypoactive uh, kind of form of psychosis where they're much more subdued. Yeah, I think that's a great distinction, distinction, one I was not aware of, um, having worked in the emergency room and, you know, just looking at media, you you see like, oh, they're psychotic, they're crazy, they they might kill you or something so absurd as that and yet there's a whole subset of population who could have psychotic disorder and they're quiet and just kind of you know locked in their thoughts and what they're thinking and just looking at them you'd have no idea what they're thinking going through and you definitely wouldn't um pin them as someone who's actively going through psychosis. Yeah, and I think it's easy to think about like, how would they present in an ED, the two different types, like the hyperactive psychosis. Yeah. They're, you know, the police found them running down the street naked. They came in yelling, kicking, screaming. They had to get medicines. They're in restraints. That's how that type of psychosis can present. But that hypoactive type can present as, you know, they get brought in because they're not caring for themselves. They haven't showered for days. Um, you know, their place is a mess. They're peeing and defecating on themselves. Um, that is something that, you know, how the hypoactive psychosis can kind of present kind of that lack of really anything. There's like, like Alex said, they really do get kind of trapped in their internal kind of thoughts. Kind of going based on, let's say we're in the emergency 
we're working in the emergency room um, and a patient who is on the one end of the spectrum, the one you described, you know, kicking and screaming, probably being brought in by the police um, and they're brought into our room in the emergency room. How what do we need to keep in mind for that subset of patients to make sure um, not only are we being safe and our staff are being safe, but we're also keeping the patient's safety in mind because we don't want to accidentally like hurt the patient um, when they're going through um, like active psychosis. I think it's important that wherever you guys work, like in the upcoming clinical years, that you know the clinical setting really well. So you know, okay, who else is here if I need help? You know, who, what are my options as far as, okay, is it, you know, security present? Is, you know, other nursing staff present? Are there people here that have been trained to deal with with that type of, of thing? So knowing your setting is, or in your surroundings is really key. The thing is, 100% your priority is to maintain safety for yourself. You have to keep yourself safe. You know, then you have to keep the patient safe, but then you have to keep your staff safe. So it is your job kind of to to maintain safety. And sometimes that can be done just by redirection. There are some patients who are psychotic that if you talk to them and redirect them and tell them to do things, you know, tell them to sit down, tell them to, you know, to stay in their chair, to stay in their room, that's enough and that will work. Um, There are people where that kind of has to escalate a little bit and you may have to use medications um, for their agitation, for their irritability. You attempt always to try oral medications. It is the less, um, it can be the less traumatic form of kind of administration of medications as far as, as far as patients. So attempting to, to get them calm by oral medications. But there are also patients who are such a safety risk to themselves and others that they do require things like IM medications. You know, they you forcibly have to give them a shot. They require restraints. You have to forcibly restrain them while they're getting medications. Um, you have to put them in a seclusion room, you know, that, by themselves. So your job is to maintain safety, but and and to do it by the least restrictive means possible. So if you can do redirection, you do redirection. If you can do oral meds, you do oral meds. If you if you know if you can just do IMs, you just do IMs. If you got to do IMs and restraints, then you do that. So it's it's maintaining safety by the least restrictive means possible, um, because it, that definitely safety is your number one concern. Because these p- people who are in the midst of a psychotic episode, they can get very very violent um, and aggressive and assaultive, and people can get hurt. So you definitely have to be aware of of your surroundings and maintain that that safety yeah for sure safety is a huge thing to keep in mind when you're walking into the room of a patient who is actively psychotic or undergoing a violent or aggressive episode what are some other things that you might want to keep in mind both in entering the room of a patient who is more aggressive and in entering the room of a patient who is um undergoing a known psychotic episode but might be calmer yeah so i think the for the aggressive patient definitely knowing where are the exits to this room you never want the patient to be in between you and an exit but also you never want to be in between the patient and an, ex- and an exit um, so understanding where the the exits are 
uh, understanding if I need help, who, do, who can I call from help? Can they hear me? Where are they? Um, and then also just being very conscientious and conscious of when you start to feel unsafe, interviews over, right? Don't push it. You know, when you start as, as a clinician to get that, Ooh, I don't feel safe. Things are escalating. That's the key. Listen to it. You leave the room. The interview's over. If you didn't get all the information you need, that's okay. You're not going to get it. Uh, a lot of times in people who are acutely psychotic. Um, so that's like for the aggressive person. I think for the non-aggressive person, just being okay with, you're not going to get all your, your questions answered. You know, these, these are not patients. You can go through the review of systems, tell you their medical history, tell you all the medications they were on. They just don't have the capacity to do that because their, their thought process is so disorganized. They can't, and that's okay. Um, so being okay with not getting all your questions answered. And if you see yourself just going in this spiral of questions in the interview, it's over, you know, it, mm -hmm. that's okay. So you talked about interviewing the patient and not really getting all of the questions that you have answered. How do like, what are some tips for interviewing a psychotic patient or a patient who is experiencing psychosis? And what do you do when you have questions that aren't getting answered? If you have to in end that interview. So the, the easiest way you really can ask any question and assess someone's like um, thought process and see if they answer in a linear fashion to see if they make sense when they're, you know, when they're answering. So it, they, it can be simple questions that you're asking, like, you know, how did you get here? Who brought you here? What did you do today? Those are things that they seem simple and superficial, but they can give you a good insight into how a person's thinking. Um, you do want to attempt to, to ask about like hallucinations if the person can communicate that kind of stuff, um, most of the time that stuff will just kind of come out in conversation in like superficial conversation. The, the big key for, for conducting interviews with this population actually isn't talking to the patient. It's talking to collateral. Like you need to find someone who knows them, someone who has seen them, talked to them, been with them recently that can give you information and give you insight into what's actually happening with this person. So a lot of the, the weight of the, the evaluation will be on collateral until the psych, the psychotic person can engage better in an interview. Yeah. I feel like the, those are good tips and advice for medical students just in general about safety. And if you feel unsafe, cause I feel like, starting off in medicine med medical students are like i just want to help everyone i want mm -hmm. and sometimes I can't leave until i answer every question yeah <laughs> yeah um and then i just have kind of a follow-up question because we've kind of discussed um questions to ask for like both subgroups and i was just wondering can a patient go from the hypoactive subgroup into you know what we may typically think about when it comes to psychosis? Like, is that something that should be in the back of our mind that like, even though this patient is hypoactive right now, there's still a possibility and thus I should be cognizant about where my exits are and everything. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's always a risk that one could convert to the other. Um, so even if someone who you don't 
deem as an imminent risk if you're worried that they're not thinking straight or they're confused or you need to still be aware of, of kind of some of those safety precautions because they can't people who are psychotic can be very impulsive they can you know overreact to stimuli they they also even if they're not hyperactive and agitated aggressive in that moment it's definitely can be a risk that someone will develop those type of symptoms. So speaking from my own personal experience, I feel like I would be worried in these kinds of instances where you're afraid that someone is going to convert to a more aggressive episode. I would be very worried about setting them off, saying the wrong thing, saying something that triggers them and sets them into these more aggressive episodes. So what would you say are some things to some, some, things to avoid? Should you not ask them if they're experiencing hallucinations? Should you not discount their experience and say what you're experiencing is not real? Or is that a way to put them back in touch with reality? Are you, are you, how do you approach that situation? Yeah. And that is, can be very, it can be patient dependent because you're right. Some patients you don't want to escalate, but that's still very important information to have. So a lot of times you'll attempt to do some reality testing early on. Um, so, you know, if Alex says that her husband is actually a movie star that makes billions of dollars, you know, you could say, you know, is it maybe not true? You know, it maybe is he not a movie star? So you can attempt to do some of that reality testing if if that sets people off, they start escalating, they get upset, they get mad, and then you kind of stop. You don't force it. Um, but you definitely uh, you try to, to do some of that testing and, and try to push things a little bit just to see how fixed are these delusions and how prominent are these hallucinations. Um, but it, it can be tricky. But oh, for the most part, any because these people remember their, their whole frame of thought is not based in reality for the most part. So really anything you can, you say could potentially set these people off. Um, so I don't think that you necessarily have to worry about asking specific questions that would set them off. Uh, I think that you have to worry about how you ask questions. So definitely ask in like a non-confrontational way. Um, and then you have to know when to stop asking questions. It's not really what question it is, not the content of the question. It's how you ask it and when do I stop mm -hmm. asking. If you deem someone to be undergoing a psychotic episode and you need to admit them, how do you tell mm -hmm. them, I think you're psychotic, you need to be admitted without triggering them and setting them off and discounting their experience? And I think that's another thing, like we talked about kind of in the depressive episode is you just have to do it. You know, you're not going to salvage that relationship in the moment. When someone's acutely psychotic, they're not going to be able to probably... Um, problem solve and and kind of understand where you're coming from and and ask for clarifications and so you just have to kind of take it let them know that you're doing it you're doing it because you think because it's what's best for them right now you're trying to get them feel better get, getting them to feel better and then like in really all involuntary admissions it's involuntary for a reason because they don't want to go um, so you kind of have to take that hit from that kind of patient relationship at the beginning. They're going to be mad, upset, hate you, whatever. But then hopefully through treatment 
And as they become stabilized and get better, they then see that, you know, your actions were, were done in an attempt to, to help them. Right. Um, kind of along that line, cause we've, we kind of have, like we've said, like two buckets of kind of typical presentation, either the hypo reactive or, um, the ones who are reactive. And I just wonder, um, do the patients still have capacity, especially for those who are the subgroup that are like hypoactive? Like, can they still make, um, like medical decisions? Are they still like, are they, have you ever encountered patients actively going through psychosis, um, and being like voluntarily wanting to be admitted or is that not a typical presentation? That's a good question. And capacity in and of itself can be very, very complicated, right? So to say someone has capacity, you have to, one, know your current medical condition. You have to know the benefits and risks of a proposed treatment, a proposed intervention. You have to know the alternatives to that opposed, a proposed treatment. Um, and then you have to be consistent in, in your decision-making process as to why or why not you want to undergo treatment. So that can get complicated and capacity very much like everything in psychiatry is kind of on a spectrum. So I do you have, and capacity is based on in one single decision. So the psychotic, Alex comes in psychotic, does she have capacity to choose her own lunch? Probably. Does she have capacity to refuse psychiatric admission? Probably not. Um, so the it's all based on what question you're assessing capacity for. Because um, capacity is, is one scenario in that moment in time you're assessing for. That's different from something called competency. So competency is a legal court-defined, court-ordered thing, which means you basically are incompetent to make any decisions. And all decisions have to be done through a guardian, a surrogate, someone else. Where capacity, it's you're assessing their ability to make one single decision. So there are patients who, can, who are psychotic who have the capacity to make some decisions, but not others. Um, psych psychosis is not an automatic, you don't have capacity thing, but I will tell you most people who have, who are psychotic do not have capacity to make high level decisions like inpatient admission, et cetera. Um, but it's not an automatic, you know, disqualifier for capacity and, um, but yeah, capacity, there's a lot of bioethical things around capacity. There's a lot of training into in doing capacity exams and things, um, it's a interesting but tricky subject for sure. And to kind of follow up with that, are there ever in your experience, because um, mm -hmm. I know you can't speak for all incidents, but have you, um, do you ever encounter patients who are actively psychotic and they're, they want to voluntarily be admitted or are you typically, mm -hmm. they're typically not in um, the mindset to be able to, think about that or make those decisions? No, there are some people who are so distressed at whatever is happening to them, you know, so distressed by the hallucinations, by the voices, by the things that they're seeing, that they, they want help and they're seeking help. And some of those people will 
voluntarily say they want to be admitted. Um, you got to think though: Does that person still have? Does that have that person have the capacity to make that decision? Because capacity doesn't come into play only when the patient doesn't do what you want them to do, right? That's a, a trap that you can really fall into. Capacity comes into play with with every decision a patient makes. So yeah, a patient could come in and say, "I want admitted." You want them admitted, but they probably still don't have capacity to make that decision um, based on, on how they're, they're thinking. So all of that tied together, when you identify a patient who is psychotic and maybe they do or they don't have capacity, what are the next steps? Do you automatically admit a patient who is undergoing a psychotic episode or are there other options? And how does capacity play a role in that? Yeah, and I think it depends on what, how severe the episode is. Most people, if they're to the point where they're having to come to the ED because of their psychotic symptoms, most most of those individuals are probably getting admitted to a hospital for stabilization, uh, either with medication, mostly with medications. Um, there are some people who are starting to just have some delusional thinking, maybe are having some hallucinations that aren't overly distressing to them. There, there some of those people can be seen in the office, start on medications and be followed up really closely in the office, as long as they have really good family support or support in the community. Um, so when you're doing your assessments, part of it is, okay, how severe are the symptoms? How well are the, the, is the patient functioning in the community? And what type of support do they have in the community to help them? Um, and that's kind of how you try to decide does this person you have to come to the hospital versus can we attempt to do this at home? Um, most people, if they're sick enough to come to the ED, they're getting admitted. There's some other people that as a psychiatrist you're seeing in your office that you could control um, in the office, but it, it can be a challenge. And every decision you're assessing for capacity, if they don't have capacity and they don't want to go to the hospital, um, as a psychiatrist, and, and there's this thing called a psychiatric hold. So um, psychiatric holds, you'll see them a lot in your psych rotations, in your ED rotations, sometimes in your medicine, like inpatient medicine rotations, but it's a legal document that uh, kind of comes in two parts. So there's a top part of a psychiatric hold. It's typically a pink piece of paper that you'll have, be in the ED or the psych ward, um, that there's a top part that's called a statement of belief. Any psychiatrist, physician, social worker, police officers, um, nurse practitioners, PAs, a lot of people can fill out that top part of a psychiatric hold saying this person is, is either at risk to themselves, at risk to someone else, um, this person is not functioning and cannot care for themselves, or this person would benefit from further treatment and evaluation. That top part legally then allows the hospital or you to hold that patient for 24 hours until they can be seen by a psychiatrist. Once that top part of a psychiatric hold is filled out, the second part is done by a psychiatrist. So then they have to conduct an evaluation and comment on the same things. You know, are they a risk to themselves? Are they a risk to someone else? Is, are they currently unable to function or care for themselves in the community? Or would they benefit from treatment? That's kind of like a, a catch-all one. Um, so if the psychiatrist can attest that they meet one of those criteria, they can then get placed on a 72-hour hold, which is legal, a court document, 
where someone is can be admitted against their will for 72 hours. That can then be extended down the line. You know, if you think that they need more than 72 hours, you can go to the court and ask for more time, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but if you think someone does not have capacity to make a decision, there is this process of, of kind of a psychiatric hold to ensure they get the, the treatment that they need uh, in those kind of scenarios. Yeah, I think that's a very helpful description and explanation of some things that are, you know, in our tool belts as medical students. And if we decide to um, pursue the field of psychiatry to help us, you know, help our patients better and um, make sure they're safe and not going to be put out into the real world into an environment where they're not quite ready to handle it. Um, so just kind of wrapping up, are there any last minute um, tips or resources that you want to advise students um, on with, about the topic of um, psychotic uh, psychosis and um, I guess just psychiatric disorders in general? No, I think the big things are the uh, emphasizing the importance of collateral. So having information from someone who knows the patient well can be crucial in these patients who cannot communicate with you. Um, so don't ever forget collateral. And the other thing just to, to really, I think, nail down uh, is the safety aspect of things. You have to keep yourself safe. You also are responsible for keeping the parent, the patient safe, you know, but not at the expense of your own safety. So make sure that you are keeping yourself safe. If you're uncomfortable, you feel like things are going to escalate. Um, just you need to remove yourself from that situation, and you're never going to get penalized for doing that. Um, that's what you should absolutely do uh, if if you're starting to feel unsafe. Yeah, those are helpful tips, um, and I just wanted to say thank you for being on our podcast. I can speak for myself and possibly my colleagues when I say that this episode will be immensely helpful once we get on to rotations for both psychiatry and the emergency room. So thank you. 